You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. One of the most challenging aspects of Christian discipleship is developing and maintaining an accurate vision of the character of God. Let that sink in for a little bit. Kind of a loaded, heavyweight statement. One of the hardest things in following Jesus, of being a Christian, is developing and maintaining an accurate vision of God's character. And here's the reason. We tend to imagine that God is very much like us. We tend to make or create or remake God in our image. Instead of being conformed to His image. We get things backwards. We tend to think that God agrees with us when it comes to our worship styles, don't we? That's why the churches had the worship wars a few years back. And it may be still, there may be some battles still fought here and there. But surely God wants to be worshipped the way that I want to worship Him. We imagine that God uh, is like us when it comes to maybe denominational choices. And that's why Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians and Episcopalians and everybody goes after each other because everybody knows that God is really on their side. We think that God is like us in our views of marriage. We think that God is like us in our attitude towards sports. How many times have I heard someone say, surely there's golf in heaven? (laughs) As if that's what Jesus is doing right now. And perhaps the the worst one, we all think God shares our politics. Somebody said, you didn't quit preaching and going to meddling and you barely got started. But yes, we have. But Christianity isn't about us conforming God to our views, is it? It's the other way around. We want a better vision of who God is. We need to understand how He's different, how He's unlike us, or better yet, how we're unlike Him, and then allow His grace and the presence of His Spirit to transform our thinking and our perspectives and our view of the world so that it matches His. We need to be made in His image, not remake Him in ours. But our tendency, our tendency is to cast God in our image. After all, if we have thoughts about something and we think we're right, surely God agrees with us. One of those aspects of God's character that we're most likely to overlook, that we maybe look at other things instead of this one, is His generosity. We talk about His grace, we talk about His mercy, we talk about His holiness, we talk about His love. We rarely talk about His generosity. And so we're taking a few weeks to do that. And our hope is that He will transform us so that we can increasingly embody that aspect of His character. We're going to learn that the problem isn't new. The Hebrew people, all the way back 
to Mount Sinai, Exodus, and through the wilderness, doubted God's generosity. And it got them in a lot of trouble, didn't it? They doubted God's generosity. It got them in a lot of trouble. And as we move through these texts, we'll see again and again and again that we, like they, when we open ourselves up to questioning God's character, we also open ourselves up to sin. In fact, we could say that we open ourselves up to sin when we distrust God's generosity. That's what happens with the Hebrew people. We open ourselves up to this, this massive potential for walking down the wrong path when we distrust God's generous character. We question that. That's what happened in the garden. We spent some time looking at the opening chapters of Genesis last week. God says you can have every fruit on every piece of tree except that one. Millions of trees, abundant generosity, and what does humanity do? What do Adam and Eve do? We want that. We don't trust that you've got what's best for us. We want to define our lives, and we want to be Lord. So we're not going to trust your generosity. We're going to take matters into our own hands. We read from Exodus 19 this morning. Of all the passages in the Old Testament, this is one of the ones we, we kind of know the story a little better than others. God has just rescued the Hebrew people from Egypt, where they were slaves. We might say, well, how did they get to Egypt as slaves? And to understand that, you've got to back up several hundred years to a figure we know as Abraham. Abraham was a resident in modern-day Iraq. He was a resident of the ancient version of modern-day Iraq. And God calls him and says, come, follow me. I'm going to give you this land. You've got to leave your home. You've got to leave your people. You've got to go to the place. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a family. And all of a sudden, if we're paying attention, we, would go, we think, wow, that sounds a lot like Adam and Eve. Here's a garden. Here's a world. Have dominion and have a family. And it's almost as if the God who had his generosity rejected in the garden, is saying, let's give this another try. I want to be generous to you. You're too old to have children, so I'm going to generously give, one, give you a child. I'm going to give you land for the family that I promised to live in. And God keeps his promise to Abraham, doesn't he? He has a family. They begin. They grow tremendously. And if we skip ahead into the story, we get all the way to his great-grandchildren, one of whom was named Joseph, who through a variety of different events found himself in Egypt, where he was number two to Pharaoh. But he died, and some other power players came along, and as the nation grew and became more of a threat... The Egyptians enslaved them. And they cried out to God and they longed to be rescued. And in Exodus 19, we hear God's declaration that I've heard your prayers, I've come in, I've demonstrated my power in manifest, clear ways. He's talking about those plagues, right? The big ten plagues, frogs and gnats and bloody water and all kinds of stuff. Red Sea 
pushed wide open. And God says, I've brought you to myself. I've taken you out of captivity. I've taken you out of slavery. I've taken you out of your darkness. I've taken you out of the place of your pain. And I've brought you to myself. And listen to the way God describes this. Exodus 19, verse 3. Moses goes up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell this to the Israelites. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine. Listen to the generosity that characterizes God's language. You were captives, I set you free. I bore you on eagles' wings. I want you to be my treasure. Just hear this aspect of God's character. He's just lavishing this abundant generosity on them. You've gone from slavery to being the, 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 the special treasure of the Creator God in a moment. He says, I want you to be mine. And this, the word that's translated treasure possession only shows up eight times in the Old Testament, not often. It's a word. One scholar says that uh, describes the jewelry that a bride wears on her wedding day. Maybe you ladies think back about that special treasured possession of yours. And God says, look, I've rescued you from slavery because I want you to be this spectacular, glorious, treasured jewel that adorns my neck. I want what's best for you. I want you to be... I want a covenant with you. I want you to be mine. And God says, look, every nation in the world belongs to me. I could pick anyone I want to. But God says, I've chosen you. And they didn't have anything to offer. They didn't have some brilliant system of government or some great equitable society or some thoroughly well-organized system of running a nation. They were slaves. Probably couldn't read. They'd grown up in an idolatrous society surrounded by untold numbers of pagan idols. <laughs> and the Creator says, I want you to be mine. And you can imagine saying, why? What do we have that we can offer you? And God says, you have nothing to offer me but I have everything to offer you, and I, wanna, I just want to lavish my generosity on you. I want you to be my people. I want to be your God. I've chosen you. The aspect of God's character as He rescues a people from slavery, the aspect of His character that is, is on display that we easily overlook, is His generosity born you on eagle's wings to myself to make you my treasure. To make you my treasure. When God brings them to himself to make them his people, it involves a vocation, doesn't it? The vocation, God tells Moses, involves two things. He says, here's what I want you to tell the Israelites. Remember, the whole earth is mine. I've chosen you 
be my treasured possession, my special people. And here's why. I need you to do two things. I want you to be my priestly kingdom, and I want you to be a holy nation. What does God want for his people? Two things. Priestly kingdom, holy nation. Let me just say, if that's the only thing you remember today, just those two things, what does God want from his people? Priestly? Holy? What kind of nation? A holy one. And what kind of kingdom? What does that mean, though, right? That's the thing. So we know what a priest is. A priest is somebody who stands between God and others. And God gave Israel a class of priests, didn't he? And it was the, the job of the priest to go into the temple and stand between God and everybody else and mediate, right? You bring your sacrifice to the priest, your priest brings it to God on your behalf. God gives forgiveness to the priest, and the priest brings it back to you on God's behalf. He's the middleman. He's the guy who stands in between God and everyone else. And he gave them that, that class of priests so that they could learn this lesson, that they're not just a people who need priests, they are a nation of priests. You think, well, who are they supposed to be mediating between? And the text, the answer's in the text. Who did God just say? Every what belongs to him? Every nation belongs to him. But I've chosen you for a unique vocation to be a priestly nation between who? Between me and all the other nations. We've got the priesthood of all believers we talk about. They had the priesthood of all Israelites. Everyone in the nation together was to represent God to all the other nations. They're the middlemen and women. But if you're going to represent God, what do you have to be? That's where the second one comes in. Remember what it was? Priestly kingdom and uh, early, some of us are awake. Priestly kingdom and holy nation. If you're going to represent God, you've got to be holy. Now, if there's one thing these folks aren't, it's what? Holy. They just came out of Egypt. They knew almost nothing about the character of the Creator. They were surrounded by the gods of the Egyptians. River God, sun God, millions of gods, literally millions. Ancient Egypt was one of the most idolatrous places in the history of the world. God says, I want to make you different. And if you read on through the Old Testament, you'll be relieved that we're not just going to work through every one of these little texts on holiness. But if you do, read through Exodus and Leviticus and on into the others, you begin to discover that holiness for God is about embodying His character. Holiness for God isn't just about keeping a list of rules for the sake of the rules. It's about embodying His character. You might take some time this afternoon, this evening after the festival, to read Leviticus 19. Maybe jot that down. And there you hear God say things like, Look, I'm holy, so you've got to be holy. I'm the Lord your God. And that means that when you go out to harvest your fields, you save some for people who are just sort of wandering through the land. That's what it says. God says, I've been generous with you. That means you need to be what? With others. Yeah, you got, I blessed you, share it with some people. 
God says uh, in, in Leviticus 19, I said we wouldn't go through all of them. We will go through a couple of them. He said in Leviticus 19, you shall be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that means uh, you've got people who work for you. Don't keep their check till tomorrow. Go ahead and pay them on payroll day. And don't hold back the wages of your hired hands is basically what the text says. Right? God doesn't withhold what belongs to other people. He doesn't sort of take advantage of those who are inferior to him for his own gain. He says, uh, don't make fun of deaf people. Right? Can you, can, you can imagine school kids on, you know, like a, on the playground and there's a kid maybe who has hearing, hearing loss and you can imagine other kids making fun of them and having, you know, it's easily kind of, you can imagine adults doing that probably. Leviticus 19 says, God says in Leviticus 19, you should be holy because I am, the Lord your God, am holy. Don't trip blind people. That's in the Bible. In case you hadn't had quiet time in Leviticus lately, just take, go look it up this afternoon. It's there. Why? Again, God treats people who are at his disadvantage with perfect love. And this is about, this is about the people of God embodying his character. God says, I'm holy. You got to be holy. You got to treat people right. And notice how much of this is relationally oriented. Right? Look at how the Ten Commandments, which are coming up in the next couple of chapters, are relationally oriented. The first four are about your relationship with God. The last six are about your relationship with the people sitting around you. You've got to worship God and don't lie to your neighbor or covet their stuff or kill them. <laughs> yeah. It's relational, isn't it? So God says, look, if you're going to be my people, I want you to be my people. That involves two things. And the first one is, remember, priestly kingdom. Priests stand in between God and other people. It says, you're a nation, you're going to stand between me and the other nations. But if you're going to be my representatives, you also have to be holy. And that's not just a legalistic list of, you know, arbitrary rules. It's my character. Because if you're going to represent me, and you don't show my character, you're not really representing me. <laughs> it's pretty, that seems to me very straightforward. So God says, you've got to be holy. You've got to show the world my character. And what is the chief aspect of God's character that we see in the opening chapters of Genesis and the promises to Abraham? I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you a garden. I'm going to give you a family. I'm going to give you the glorious privilege of my covenant. I've chosen you among every nation. God calls His people to embody His character. And the chief aspect of His character that shows up that we easily miss consistently is His generosity. He just gives stuff away all the time. He's constantly giving. And He doesn't owe anyone. He doesn't owe them anything. They've been slaves in an idolatrous nation for hundreds of years. He doesn't owe anyone anything except that he binds himself by making promises, generous promises, 
that he loves to keep. The problem comes in when the people who initially are thinking, hey, you know, what a sweet deal. <laughs> we were slaves. Now the God who made everything is made as his. Yes, we're in. That's their initial response. Bring it on. We're excited. So Moses says, all right, I got to go up the mountain, figure out what this isn't, what invo- what's involved here. He goes up the mountain, and not many days after, they're beginning to think, well, what happened to Moses? I mean, is he dead up there? We don't know. Aaron, make us a God to worship. What have they done? They're doubting God's provision. Just days and weeks after they've said, yes, we want to be your people, they are already doubting that he cares for them. Moses has gone up the mountain. We don't know what happened to him. We might as well take matters into our own hands. Make us a God, and we'll give glory to that golden calf for delivering us from the Egyptians. They don't trust God's generosity, do they? They don't trust His promises. They don't trust that what He said, I want you to be, I I treasure you. They don't trust that. And they put themselves in a position to cascade into sin and idolatry. False worship because they don't trust the character of God. And that golden calf is just getting things started. You may remember the consequence was some extra time in the wilderness. Forty years they wandered. And remember how God fed them? We're out here starving. God brought us in the wilderness to kill us. All right, I'll give you some manna. Bread from heaven. Oh, that's great. Let's eat the bread from heaven. Not long afterwards, this stuff, you have eat the same thing every day, you're going to get tired of it. God, you brought us out here, gave us this bread from heaven. Have you, it's getting a little bland. Same thing every day. How about a little, ver- that we had melons and leeks and figs in Egypt. God says, all right, how about some quail? Anybody like quail? God says, I'm going to send you some quail. Trust me. His gener- as this is his generosity. This is his, he's the provider. He cares for them. He, he just says, look, I'm going to give you, give you things. You are complaining, irritating people, and I'm just going to give you some stuff. Like, we don't give things to people who irritate us, but God does. Thanks be to God for that, right? Imagine how badly we irritate him sometimes. He's just like, look, I want you to know my generosity. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you everything you need just trust me but they don't they distrust his generosity in the path down to sin a slippery slope they just cascade on and on and on until they get to the edge of the promised land and remember what happens at the edge of the promised land joshua very name is god saves (laughs) joshua goes into the promised land with some spies. And they're, all right, here we are. God says he's going to give us the land. He's lavishing his generosity on us. Here we go. Let's go check it out. Numbers says they go into the land, and they get this. uh, It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And they get this single, this is back in chapter 13, single cluster of grapes. Anybody have a single cluster of grapes for breakfast? Maybe snack later. 
you can usually carry them in the palm of your hand, right? This cluster of grapes, two of them had to get a pole and sling it over the top. Right? God says, here's my generosity. You can't carry the grapes by yourself. And it also says, on top of the grapes that were so big they had to be carried on a pole between two people, they also brought some pomegranates and figs. This is the land. It's like a new Eden, isn't it? And if Eden is about God's generosity, the promised land is about God's generosity. And God is saying, look, I'm giving this. You don't deserve it. You, you have only complained for 40 years, and I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you because I love you, because that's who I am. I'm your generous rescuer. Grapes, as big as your head. Trouble is, there's also some other big characters in the land, aren't there? Those spies come back and they say, guys, we have a problem. Yes, the grapes are spectacular, but the people are fearsome. And they're huge, they're giants, they're... Shout for the Amalekites. They're scary people, and it looks like God brought us all this way after 40 years to the edge of the land just to let them slaughter us. And you're thinking, where have you people been for the last 40 years? He's met every need. He's cared for you in every way. You are his treasured possession. And you think now he's brought you to the edge of the promise, the place of his generosity, the new Eden. Just to, he's put all this effort into it just to kill you on the spot. And you think, how can they distrust him this way? How can they distrust his generosity? Don't we all? Don't we all distrust his generosity? I don't like my circumstances, God. I don't have enough, God. I'm not sure you've got what's best for me, God. I know you've given me everything I've had, but I'm not confident I can trust you with tomorrow. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. The Israelites had to learn that they were broken people, didn't they? They had to learn that their hearts were hard. They had to learn that they needed to be rescued, not just from Egypt, not just from captivity in Egypt, but from slavery to sin. And that the generosity of God in rescuing them from slavery in Egypt was pointing forward to a day when he would rescue all of us from slavery to sin. Because that's the thing that keeps us from embodying his character. Our hearts, Martin Luther said, are turned in on themselves. And we can pray with Charles Wesley, take away the bent to sin that I have, God. Just My heart is curved in. I'm focused on myself. I don't trust you. I want to be in control. I need you to transform that. Just take away the distrust and take away the curvature, the bent towards sin. Release, rescue me from those things so that I can, so that I can embody your character, your grace, your mercy, 
your compassion, your generosity. God says, that's what I've wanted all along. That's what I've wanted all along, but you've got to trust me. You've got to trust me. Friends, we want to be renewed in the image of Jesus. That's what it's about. It's all it's about. <laughs> There's nothing else. Right? We want to be renewed in the image of Jesus. That's what it means to be full. That's what it means to be complete. That's what it means to be holy. To experience that renewal, God's Holy Spirit has to open our eyes. To the full range of God's character. To His faithfulness. To His compassion. To His fatherly love. To His self-sacrificial love to his abiding love all of which are aspects of the way he gives himself you ever think about that the reason we can talk about God's generosity so much is because the whole story of the Bible is a story of a God who gives himself. And ultimately, he gives himself in Jesus. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. I don't say this as a command, but I'm testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you may become rich. That's not a prosperity gospel. One reason we need to talk about this is just because just yesterday I saw where a prominent preacher was saying, hey, if you give to my ministry, God will bless you. Maybe that was on your Facebook too. Paul is not preaching a prosperity gospel. What he is saying is that Jesus gave himself Abandon the wealth of heaven. Embrace the poverty of the manger so that you could be rescued from the poverty of your sin and come in to the wealth of his holiness. It only happens, it only works when Jesus is number one. When our eyes are on him, when our hearts are oriented to him. And if we find ourselves distrusting him, stepping away, you know, I'm not sure I can trust you in this, Lord. I know you've cared for me in the past. I don't know that I, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about that. And we, we open ourselves up to dangerous things. In a moment, we're going to come and eat bread. 
It's the bread over which the Lord Jesus Christ has said, this is my body. And when you eat it, he wants to put his character in you. This is why we do it often, maybe not often enough. <laughs> because he wants to fill us. And he's given us this sacrament of holy communion as a visible, tangible way of taking his body into our body and his blood into our veins so that we can embody his life. So in a moment when you come, you break that bread and you dip it in the cup and you put it in your mouth and it goes into your body. Let your prayer be Jesus, every aspect of your character. I want every aspect of your character to characterize my life. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hall United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.